Hey, good morning, Harvest Rochester. It's uh, really good to be with you this morning. My wife Lynn and I have been looking forward uh, to this weekend and sharing God's Word and just seeing what God uh, is doing here in your church. And uh, I was thinking as I was coming, I was going, what a great weekend to be at uh, Harvest Rochester for several reasons. Number one, this is the first Sunday of 2017, and what a great privilege that is. And I trust this will be a great year for each one of you. Secondly, I was thinking, wow, what a great weekend to be here in the church when they're doing an elder installation. And uh, we're excited about Ben and Amanda and how God will use them as a part of the leadership here. And uh, then thirdly, I was thinking, uh, it's the Bears-Vikings game today. Go Bears! Hey, can't we just be friends? Can't, can't, can't we all just get along? And uh, so, anyway, uh, we are excited to uh, be here uh, today, and uh, we're really looking forward to seeing Stephen Kim, and uh, we love your pastor and his wife, and I hope you love your pastor and his wife, uh, because he loves you, he loves the Lord Jesus, he loves preaching his word, and uh, we're thankful for the way that God is at work in this church, and working through your senior pastor and his wife, and uh, we just believe God's got more in store for your church, and the impact that I believe it's going to make uh, in this community, so uh, we are very grateful to be here uh, this morning. A uh, part of my time is spent at Harvest Bible Chapel and part of my responsibilities are found uh, spent in what we call Harvest Bible Fellowship and uh, I just want to give you a little update there because you guys support Harvest Bible Fellowship and uh, we've planted just over 150 churches. How exciting is that in North America and around the world and uh, we believe that the greatest way that God is impacting a place is through the local church and as the gospel is preached and so we're excited about that and uh, we're also excited because we just uh, graduated 40 guys from the training center and their wives. Uh, they just left in mid-December. And so this September, just think, 40 more churches are going to get planted. Now, um, I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is because that's not just something we're doing in Chicago. That is something that we are doing together as uh, fellowship churches. And I hope you have a real sense of that. You guys pray for that. Uh, Steve comes often and is involved in the training center. We're thankful for that. And uh, you guys give towards that financially. So uh, I hope as you're hearing me kind of give that little update, that you're kind of going, I am fired up about that. That's something that we are doing together. And we praise God and thank you uh, for your support uh, in this thing called uh, church planting. All right. So I just want to give you that little update, and uh, now it's time to get into God's Word. You guys fired up about that? Oh, there's a woo over there. I heard that. Uh, and I, I, I'm fired up about that, too. That's why I came. And uh, I want you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. I love the Old Testament. I love all of God's Word. Uh, it's all great. It's all there for us. It's all inspired. But I, I love the Old Testament because I think there's some stories in the Old Testament about people just like us that we see God doing an amazing thing through their life and we can learn some things from them. And they're people just like us. People who love God, people who are committed to His Word, want to see Him work in our life. And so I hope you'll be encouraged by this story of, uh, of David. I think most of you are probably familiar with David when you think of him, the guy who wrote all the Psalms. And, but uh, David's got some th great things to teach us. Uh, here from 1 Samuel chapter 30. But before we read that scripture and jump into the story, hey, do you guys have uh, some stories that you like to tell to your families when you get together? 
Maybe you just did that over Christmas or New Year's over this holiday season. Uh, Lynn and I have some stories that we love to tell. Our kids were just home and our grandkids were over and we had a great Christmas and New Year's together and we found ourselves f- telling some stories about that happened a long time ago. Can I tell you one of those stories? You don't mind? Okay. And so uh, this was a long time ago. Our kids were just small then. And... Uh, we were meeting in the high school back in Rolling Meadows, and just being in the high school here kind of reminds me of this. And we had been there all day, kind of on a Sunday, and we had been doing something after church. And I remember we were kind of driving home. It was a little later in the afternoon. It was almost supper time, and we were getting close to home, and our kids say, hey, Mom and Dad, can we go to McDonald's for supper? Of course, you know. Okay, yeah, yeah, we can go to McDonald's. There's one not far from our house. And so uh, we pulled into McDonald's. We walked into the restaurant. The unusual thing about it was, I don't know about you, but whenever you go into McDonald's, usually there's lots of people in there. But this time it was almost empty. There was like two high school, about high school age boys who were sitting at a table eating their dinner over here. And we kind of got our food and we turned to go to a table. And for whatever reason, we kind of went over to the other side of the restaurant. And I remember I was sitting like this at the table. Lynn was right beside me. Our two kids were there and I could just kind of see these two high school boys on the other side of the restaurant. We were just eating and having a good time and talking about different things when all of a sudden I noticed these two other guys come walking into the restaurant over on that other side, and I'd say they were kind of like college age. But the thing that really caught my eye when they came walking in was one of the guys was carrying, I don't know, a lead pipe about that long, and the other guy had a two-by-four that was maybe about that long. I don't know, I didn't, I didn't pay, think that much about it. I thought, oh, maybe they're doing a little work outside or something. And Yeah, I know, I was kind of naive. But, um, and then I walked, so kind of walk over, and they started talking to these two high school boys. And I just went back to eating, and we were talking. When all of a sudden, the guy with the two-by-four, he picked that thing up over his head, and he swung it across that table, and there was Big Macs and French fries and salt and pepper shakers. They were flying all over the restaurant. And have you ever been at one of those moments where you can't believe what you just saw and you're kind of going like, that was me. I was, well, he wasn't done. Because in a moment, again, he took that two by four up over his head and he came down and he hit one of the kids so hard right here on the shoulder and his neck. He hit him so hard, he knocked him out of his chair and onto the floor, and I was like, I, I, I can't believe that everybody, we're just like, did that really just happen? Well, in a shot, my wife Lynn was up out of her chair, running across the restaurant, yelling, you boys stop that, you boys stop that right now. And there was Lynn across the restaurant, Nose to nose with these two guys who, by the way, still had the two by four and the lead pipe in their hand going, you boys stop that. You boys stop that right now. (laughs) Well, as soon as I could get out from under our table, (laughs) somebody had to protect our kids, right? Actually, no, Lynn and I are both standing over there and there was that moment where we were kind of wondering, what's going to happen next? What are they going to do? Are they going to hit us? Are they... Well, those two guys decided we're taking off and they ran back out of the restaurant out through that side door. My wife wasn't finished. She chased them out of this restaurant, out of the door, and she had the presence of mind to memorize the license plate number before those guys drove out of the parking lot. The manager called the police. Lynn was able to give them the license plate number. The police found those two guys. We heard they got their just 
uh, reward that should have been coming to them because of what they did. And the story had a good conclusion. Why? Because when the crisis happened, my wife acted quickly and decisively. Would you agree? Now listen, I'm not here to tell you that silly story about McDonald's and that story that our family thinks about, which could have had a very different ending. God protected us. I came here to tell you this. Here we are. It's the first Sunday of 2017. I'm sure every one of us is trusting God for a great new year, a prosperous one, a fruitful one, one that we want to see him do a great work in our life. And those are all good things. But listen to me, loved ones. Here's what the scripture says. Crisis is coming, isn't it? Crisis is coming into our life. Some of you may be walking into 2017 with a crisis going on in your life right now. Some of us, the crisis is just around the corner. It's not if it's going to happen, it's just when, right? That's what Scripture tells us. And here's what I've come to tell you and what we can learn from the life of David, and it's simply this. When the crisis comes, how will you choose to respond? How are you going to choose to respond? And if we learn from the life of David, and if we even use a little illustration of Lynn, if we will act quickly and decisively, and here more importantly, biblically, God can even take a crisis that we're walking through in our life and use it for good and to accomplish His purposes. Do you believe that? I believe that because I've, seen it in my own life and that's what i want to share with you this morning how do we respond in a crisis and i want you to turn to your scriptures first samuel chapter 30 i want you to see i'm not just making this stuff up it's coming right out of god's word and this is what happened from david he teaches us three really important lessons about how to respond in a crisis i'm going to start at verse one we're going to go right through the whole chapter i'm only going to read the first six verses but we're actually going to look at this whole story don't freak out we're going to do it in about 35 minutes and uh, starting at verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 30, just follow along as I read. It says this. Now when David and his men came to Ziglag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziglag. They had overcome Ziglag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices, and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Here comes the key verse. Look at this. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Now here comes a key verse. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Isn't that great? In the the crisis, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We're going to look at this story, three important principles here for us, but before we do that, let's just pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to gather here as we have. Thank you for this place. I thank you that we can come freely here. 
I thank you for the worship that's already stirred in our hearts, the truths of who you are and what you want to be to us and how you want us to respond to us, you, Lord. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to worship with our tithes and offerings and we've already given unto you and it's an act of faith and trust with all that you have given to us. And now, Lord, we want to worship you through the teaching of your word. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to lean into your word today. I pray that you would remove any distractions that we would find in our own hearts and minds because of things that are going on in our life. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to communicate your word in a very clear and practical and accurate way. And I pray, Lord, that you would use it to change us, to make us more like your son. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, three important truths that David teaches us that answer the question, how do we respond in a crisis when it comes into our life, okay? Here's the first one. We find this in verses 1 to 6, specifically verse 6. Here's the first thing you need to do in a crisis. In the crisis, I must remember who God is. That's where it all starts. In the crisis, when it comes into your life, I must remember who God is. Now, let me just give you a little context of the story. Can I do that? Let me just tell you what was going on. So David and his men were returning from a battle that they never got to fight. They've just finished walking 75 miles in three days. As you can imagine, David and his men are tired, they're hungry, and they're looking forward to being reunited with their wives and their children. And as David and his men come up and over the hill and ready to come down to their homes, everything and everyone was gone. Listen, there was no children running to meet them. There were no wives waiting to greet them at the door. Everything was gone. Only the sound of the smoldering ashes of their burned out homes broke the silence as David and his men stood there in shock asking themselves, what had happened, and who, who would have done such a thing? Well, tell me, loved ones, who did it? Verse 1 tells you, what's the scripture say? Who did this? Okay, this group of people called the Amalekites. Now, you know what? It's very easy just to kind of pass over that very quickly and kind of go, okay, the Amalekites, who cares? Listen, they play a very important part in this story. Can I just tell you a little bit about who the Amalekites were and why it's important in the story? Here's who the Amalekites were. They were actually a nomadic group of people. They were descendants of Esau, and they had been longtime enemies of the people of Israel, dating all the way back to the time of the Exodus. In fact, it was the Amalekites who were the very first nation, you remember this, they were the very first nation to attack Israel once Israel had left Egypt at a time when Israel was very weak and vulnerable. But here's the great thing. But you remember this? God gave Moses and the people of Israel a miraculous victory over the Amalekites. And you remember what God said? He made a promise to Moses after that victory. You remember what it was? He simply said this. Moses, one day I will take my vengeance on the Amalekites for what they did to you today. Now listen, can we just step out of the story for a moment? Because this is important. And it's simply this. Don't miss this principle. God is faithful to his promises. I want you to hear that. As you go into another year, 
God is faithful to his promises. Now, some of you are saying, well, Rick, why do you say that? Well, listen, God is faithful to his promises. Listen, loved ones, God does not overlook. God does not forget the promises that he makes to us in his word. And even though a hundred, over a hundred years had passed since God had made this promise to Moses about taking his vengeance on the, uh, uh, on the Amalekites, God in this story was about to raise up David in this story to be the fulfillment of that promise, to be the instrument of his vengeance against the Amalekites. Listen to me, loved ones. This is a great truth. God is faithful to his promises. Aren't you thankful for that? I am too. This story reminds me about that. Okay, so let's get back into the story. All right, David and the Amalekites. So, do you see it? David has a great crisis on his hands. David's got a great crisis on his hands. Do you see what's going on? Not only was David grieving in his own heart, think about it. His own wife and children, all his children, they're gone. He doesn't know whether they're alive. He doesn't know where they are, who, who's taken them. He has no idea. David is grieving deeply in his own heart for the loss of everything that's important to him. But not only that, did you see what else the scripture says? Do you see the crisis that he's facing? His men, his men, 600 of his men, they've also lost their wives and children and their homes that have been burned down. They also are grieving deeply for this loss. And in the midst of their grief, somebody has to pay for it. And think about this. Men who had fought with David, men who had followed David, men who had been faithful to David, now are turning on him and saying, David, it's your fault that we've had this loss in our life. We are going to kill you. We're going to stone you to death. David had a, a crisis on his hands. Now listen. Let's make this practical to our own life. Maybe some of you have a crisis that you're walking through right now. For some of you, it could be a relational crisis. Someone that you love, somebody that you trusted, has betrayed you. They've broken that trust. And you're wondering, is this relationship going to survive? And lots of questions. And for some of you, it could be a financial crisis that you're going through right now. A job that's been lost and bills that are piling up and wondering how are we going to make ends meet and lots of cons questions and concerns. For some of you, the crisis that maybe you're facing or will face is going to be a medical crisis. You've been to the doctor and test results have come back and there's lots of questions and uncertainty and the future does not seem uh, very clear for you. And Listen, loved ones. No matter what crisis we might be going through, we can learn from David in the crisis. Remember who God is. Now you might be saying, okay, Rick, where are you getting that from? You keep saying it, but where are you getting it from? Well, look at verse 6. What does it say again? In the crisis, what did David do? It says he, he strengthened himself. He strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. That's what he did. Now, the key word there is the word he strengthened himself. What does that mean? Well, the word strengthen there is an interesting word. It actually means to grow strong, to grow courageous, to grow mighty. That's the complete opposite of what you would think would be happening as David faced this crisis. He's not growing defeated. He's not growing discouraged. He's not becoming fearful. He's not becoming paralyzed. The scripture says that he's growing strong and mighty and courageous. But listen, don't miss it. 
Where was that strength coming from? Look, it was not coming from himself, like the world wants to tell you. It wasn't him reaching down somehow and finding this. His strength was coming as he remembered who his God was. How, who he knew him to be. How God had revealed himself. How David had experienced him in the past. God's faithfulness to his promise. And as David remembered and reminded himself of those things, even though he faced this great crisis, the result of that, he was strengthened. He became courageous. He became mighty in the Lord. Now there's a principle here for us, and I don't miss this either, as we face the crisis, and it's this. A right response in the crisis has everything to do with right and biblical thinking. Now, if you're taking notes, write that down. It's important when the crisis comes. A right response in the crisis has everything to do with right and biblical thinking about who God is and how he works and and how he's re- what he's revealed himself to be. And I don't know about you, but this is what I find sometimes in the crisis. So often in the crisis, we can get our eyes off of God, the one who's in control and wants to use the crisis, and we can get our eyes onto the crisis, and all of a sudden the crisis seems so big, and God seems so small and distant. Do you know what I'm talking about? And we, the result of that is we can feel defeated and discouraged instead of strengthening ourselves in the Lord our God. And so, how do we make that practical? Well, I thought about that. What does it mean to remember who God is? Well, there's so many things that I could tell you right here about who God is and how He's revealed Himself, but could I just share with you five? Here's just five, five great things to remind yourself as we remember who God is. Here they come. I'll just say them quickly. Number one, they'll be on the screen. I will not fear. Uh, God is always with me. It's the promise of His presence. Aren't you thankful for that? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6. Here's another one when we remember who God is. I will not doubt. God is always in control. It's, it, don't you love this? It's the promise of His sovereignty. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. Here's a third one. I will not despair. God is always good. It's the promise of His goodness. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Here's the fourth one. I will not falter. I like this one. God is always watching. He's aware. It's the promise of his attentiveness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. And then here's the last one. I will not fail. God is always victorious. It's the promise that he sees beginning to end. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17. Again, loved ones, I would just say this to you. When the crisis comes, learn this important principle from David, and it's simply this. Uh, in the crisis, i got to remember who God is. Do you know Him personally? Are you experiencing Him in, his lo- in your life? Isn't that a great thing? I-, I hope you know Him personally. If you don't know Him personally, here's the great thing. You can know that today by putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Okay, here's the second principle. Here's the second principle. In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. That's the second thing. In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. Well, again, 
I'm not just making this up. Look at what the scripture says. Look at verse 7. Read it with me. Verse 7 to 9 it says this. The story goes on. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord. Key, key uh, phrase there. Shall I pursue this man? Shall I overtake them? He, God, answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake, and you shall surely rescue. Love this. Look at verse 9. So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor. Okay, so what are we learning here? In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. All right? Now, I love this part of the story because do you see it? It's so clear here. Before David did anything, what did he do? Yeah, exactly. He, he inquired of the Lord. Don't miss that. Do you see the principle here for us? The key is before David did anything. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in David's shoes, my wife's gone, my kids are gone, everything that's most important to me, gone, not sure if it's dead or alive, they're dead or alive, what would you do? Is there anything to talk about? Let's go get him. But what does David do first? Before he did anything, it says he what? He inquired of the Lord. Key principle? This is very convicting to me. How many times do I find myself, even in ministry, doing things before I inquire of the Lord? I know how to do that. I, I've been there before. I have that experience, so I'm just, and I find myself down the road before ever taking time to pray and ask God, what do you want me to do? Don't miss that, loved ones. That's important. In the crisis, inquire of the Lord. And then David says this. So he's going to inquire of the Lord, and it says in the scripture, bring me the ephod. How many people saw that and went, what on earth is an ephod? And why was David wanting it? Yeah, I was thinking that too when I was studying this story. And so I had to look it up too. What's an ephod? Do you know what an ephod is? And why David wanted it? Do you know what that is? Okay, this was an ephod was. An ephod was like, um, it was like a sleeveless vest that the high priest would wear over his ceremonial robes. And on the front of that little vest was a pocket. And now here it comes. And in the pocket was this little instrument called the Urim. You know this, the Urim and Thummim. And that's what David was after. That's why he called for the, bring me the ephod. Now, okay, now some of you are looking at me like, okay, Rick, this isn't getting any better. What's a Urim and Thummim? All right. Well, I don't, okay, what's a Urim and Thummim? Okay, well, let me tell you, it was this. A Urim and Thummim were like these, I, I'd say, they're like these two identical looking stones, kind of flat stones that had identical markings on both sides. Uh, on one side of the stone was called, the marking was called Urim, which meant to be cursed. On the other side of the stone was a marking called Thummim, which meant to be perfect. You see, in the Old Testament, they didn't have God's word completed like we do today. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living in them like we do today. So God gave them other ways to determine his will. We don't have to do this today. And so one of those instruments that God had given to the leaders of Israel when they were determining his will was the Urim and Thummim. And what they would do is they'd roll them onto the ground like dice. And to, based on how they turned up, God was showing them his will. So if these, both these stones turned up Urim, 
to be cursed? God was saying, no, don't do it. It's not my will. If both those stones turned up thumbing, which they did in this story, which meant to be perfect, God was saying, that's my will. That's exactly what I want you to do. If one turned up Urim and one turned up thumbing, two out of three. All right, so I, I, I don't really know. The scripture doesn't tell us, but that's the way that they would uh, determine God's will. But here's the thing that I love about this part of the story. When, when, when both those stones turned up thumbing and God was saying, go, pursue the enemy, you will overtake them. This is the part I love about David. What does it say? And he went. Don't you just love that part of the story? He didn't try to argue with God. He didn't try to rationalize. He didn't question God. When God's will was perfectly clear, there was just total and absolute obedience. Do you see that? It's just so clear in the story. Now, I don't know about you, but again, when I think about the story, can you think of some good reasons that David could have given to God as to why not to do what he's telling him to do? Yeah, I could think of a few. Like, just put yourself in the story. Like, here's one. I could see David saying, God, uh, like, I know what you, you want us to go, but God, God, we can't do that. We just finished walking 75 miles in three days. We're tired. We're hungry. Like, we're, we're just not physically ready to do what you want us to do. Does that seem like a good reason? Oh, how about this one? Oh, God, like, we, we don't even know if our wife and kids are alive. We, we don't even know where they are and who has them. God, we're not even emotionally ready yet to obey you. Doesn't that seem like a good excuse? Or how about this one? I think I would have thought of this. Hey, God, like, we don't even know how many Amalekites there are. There's only 600 of us. And what's the plan when we find them? Like, what are we supposed to do? God, we're not strategically ready to obey. But don't you just love this part of the story? There was none of that. When God's, listen now, loved ones, when God's word and his will was clear, there was just total and complete obedience on David's part. In the crisis, I must respond to what God says. Okay, now, let's make it even more practical to our lives, right? Because this, there's, a, there's something, God's trying to tell us something today, right? Through this story. And so here's what I wrote down. What do you do when God's will is really clear to you? So you got God's word. You're going through a really hard thing. He's telling you to do something. How do we sometimes respond to it? I wrote down four ways that I respond to it. Maybe you'll, you can somehow apply this. Here's a way that I respond to God's word sometimes. When it's clear, sometimes I question it. Do you ever do that? You read God's word. He tells you what to do in this situation. And you kind of go, God, <laughs> you don't really mean that. And he's going, yes, I do. If you want to know fruitfulness and prosperity in your life, if you want my blessing, do what I say. We question it. Here's another thing. Oh, we like to negotiate it. Have you ever done that? God, if you do this, then what do we say? Then I'll do that. That's not how he wants us to respond to his word. Oh, here's another one. Sometimes we question it, ra we negotiate it, or we rationalize it. Have you ever done that one? I've done this. Oh, God, I see what your word says. That's just way too hard. And sometimes God's word is hard and challenging and difficult. And we kind of go, 
God, you'll understand if I just kind of come up with my own plan. Well, here's the fourth one, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, but I have done this. How do we respond to God's word? Sometimes when it's clear, we just, we disobey it. We just dis- flat out disobey it. I know what your word says. I'm not doing it. I'm doing my own thing. And listen, loved ones, then what happens? And then we wonder why are there so many believers walking around defeated and discouraged in the midst of their crisis because we won't do what God's word says learn this lesson from david it couldn't be clear for you in the crisis i must respond to what god says so here's my last question to make it even more practical so let me ask you this question what is god's word clearly telling you to do today is there something he's telling you to do as you're going into 2017, let me just give you some ideas. Maybe you will relate to some of these. Is there a person you need to forgive? Maybe it's somebody in this church. Maybe it's a person in your family. Maybe it's that person at work. There's somebody who's hurt you that you need to forgive. You've got all your reasons. Why not? But I'm telling you, you're putting yourself in your own prison until you do what God's word says, which is to forgive. Here's the second thing. Is it a relationship that you need to restore or end are some of us in a relationship that's not honoring to god it needs to end or are some of us separated in a relationship that needs to be restored we need to be taking the steps towards that here's the third one is it a sin you need to confess is it is there a sin and over weekly over and over the holy spirit's convicting you he's touching that area of your life you know it's wrong you know it needs to change Is it a sin you need to confess? Listen, loved ones. Learn the second principle from David. In the crisis, in the crisis, respond to what God says. Okay, there's a third point here, and we're going to finish. Here it is. Look at these next few verses. I'm just going to read a few verses here. Start at verse 11 because the story goes on. And it says this. So David's obeying. The men have left, the 600 men. They're going to find the Amalekites, just believing God's going to take them there. Now look at verse 11. And they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. Now down to verse 13. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? Now watch this. He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to, what's the next word? And uh, that should bells are going off in your head like they were in David's right now and his men and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago now down to verse 15 and David said to him will you take me down to this band and he said swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band this is a great part of the story because now we're coming to the conclusion but it's the third principle and here it is in the crisis I must receive God's provision Do you see this? In the crisis, I must receive God's provision. So let me give you a little context of what's going on here in verses 11 to the end of the story. So here's what happens. So David, God says, go and get them. I'm going to give you victory. You're going to be successful. Even though David doesn't know where they are, how many Amalekites there are, he just says, that's what you're telling me to do, God. Great principle here. So I'm going to obey you. So he and his 600 men are starting to walk, just believing that God's going to take them to these Amalekites and they're going to get their families back, right? That's what's going on. Not even halfway into the trip, this is what it's telling you in verses 12, 13, 14, 
200 of David's 600 men, what do they say? Oh, David, I can't go on. I'm too tired. Now, men, I'm talking to the men right now. Now, men, I wouldn't want to be one of those 200 guys. All right? Now, think about this. Your wife and your children are gone. The Amalekites have taken them. You don't know whether they're the dead or the alive. They're the most important things in your life. And what, when they come back, you have to look at your wife and kids and say, Honey, I love you. I'm so glad to see you again. I was just too tired to come and get you. How would you like to have that conversation with your wife? That would not go good with my wife, Lynn. All right? I'm too tired. But do you see this? That wasn't David's response, was it? What did David say? Hey, guys, you stay right here at the brook. You rest. You be refreshed. To make this little part of the story short, this is the thing I love about David. Why could David do that? If I was going after my wife and kids, and I didn't know how many of the enemy there were, I would want every one of those men with me. But listen, that wasn't David's perspective. He said, if we only go with 400, it's not a problem. I think David would have gone by himself because David's faith, look at it was not in himself. It was not in the number of men. It was not in his strategy. Who is David's confidence in? It was in God who is in control and who is obeying and who he believed was working. And I think David would have gone by himself. There's a great principle there for you, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. And so David gets those 200 men. He leaves them there. Now he's got 400. They're walking. They're just trusting God. I believe he's going to answer our prayer. He's going to take us to the Amalekites. When all of a sudden they find this guy laying in the field. They're like, is this amazing? They just come across this guy. They pick him up. They take him back to the camp. They feed him. They give him water to drink. When he starts to feel better, they say, who are you? That's a good question. Who are you? The guy says, I'm an Egyptian. But the key was, I wasn't a servant to one of the Like, did bells just start going off in your mind when we were reading that? Can you see how excited David and his men were when he said those words? This was the answer. God is faithful. He, he, he's he's going to do exactly what he told us to do. And the story goes on. The guy wasn't stupid. He said, if you will spare my life, I'll take you to the Amalekites. How amazing is that? The very thing that they were wanting and trusting God for, that God said he would do. The story ends like this, if you just read the verses that we didn't read. David had an amazing worship service that night as they thanked God for his faithfulness, that God did what he said he was going to do. Can you imagine the impact it made on David and his men for the rest of their lives? That God was faithful to his promises? That next morning, it says David and his men came down the mountain, swept into the camp of the Amalekites while they were drunk and worshiping their false gods. They killed all the Amalekites except for 400 who just got away on some camels. David and his men got all their wife and children back. It was a great day. Hey, listen, loved ones, that's our God. That's the same God that you're serving today. You see, in the crisis, wait for God's provision. You never know how it's going to come, but wait for his provision. Can I tell you two things about God's provision? Just as we're closing here, and it's simply this. Uh, God's provision, here's a principle, God's provision always follows our obedience. Do you see that? God's provision always follows our obedience. Don't you always wish it was the other way around? God's provision comes, and then I'll obey. But that's not the way it comes in Scripture. God says, 
do what I tell you, then wait for my provision. You're going to see my faithfulness in your life. Okay, well, here's two things about God's provision in our life that are always true. Here's number one. God's provision comes according to His timing. See, it comes according to His timing. That's an important thing to remember in the crisis because we want it to come right away. We want it to come right according to our schedule when we think it should come. And God says, no, 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 no. It's going to come according to my timing. Just as you see here in the story, it came as David and his men stepped out in obedience and trusted him by faith. Do you see that? His provision came. Here's the second thing. God's provision always comes according to not only his timing, but it always comes his way. Can I explain that? God's provision always comes His way. What do I mean by that? God always promises to meet our need, not our want. Now think about that. This is God's promise. He will always meet our need, but He hasn't promised to meet our want. Now here's a great thing in the story. David and his men got their wives and kids back. Everything was great. God doesn't always meet our needs that way. We don't always get our wives and kids back, if you know what I'm trying to say. Sometimes God's provision to meet our need comes this way. Sometimes it's a greater sense of God's presence in our life. That's what we need to encourage us, to have a sense that He's with us as we're facing this crisis. Oh, here's another thing. Sometimes it's God's grace. That's what He gives us. That's not what we want, but that's what we need We need His grace to give us exactly what we need, when we need it, as we walk through the crisis. Oh, here's another thing. Sometimes God's provision can be this. It's His strength. It's increased faith. It might not be what we want, but it's what we need as we're walking through the crisis, a greater sense of how did I get through that as we someday, one day look back at the crisis going, it was God's strength, it was increased faith to keep trusting Him as I walk through that. Do you see that? God's provision always follows our obedience. Okay, I'm going to close with this story, and it's this. So it wouldn't be fair to kind of tell you that and challenge you about that except to tell you a story in my own life. And I could tell you lots of stories of seeing God's provision. Lynn and I could both say that in our lives, but there's one story I want to tell you about our church because it fits so well with one I tell you, and it's this. It was back in 1997. And uh, I see Joe and Christy sitting up here, and they probably remember this, because Christy was a part of our church back then. And uh, uh, it was 1997. It was a hard time financially in our country. People were losing their jobs. There wasn't a lot of extra money. We were in our first building about two years into it. We were really excited. God had provided this place for us. But here was the problem, just like you guys are seeing in your church. Our church was growing. And we needed more room. We needed a bigger worship center. We needed more office space. We needed more children's ministry because we had to care for the people that God was entrusting to us. Problem was, we didn't have the money. And we didn't think we could raise it, so we were saying, God, how do we do that? And so this, uh, you know those big billboards along the highways that you see? We had one of those um, on our property. And I remember that company coming to us and saying basically this, we'll pay you a boatload of money if you let us put advertising on that billboard. And of course, when I heard that and the rest of the elders heard that, we went, that's it! There's God's provision! That's how we're going to pay for, uh, the, to build out our building the way that we need to. God's going to provide through that sign. But I remember in that elder meeting, out of the seven elders, one of them said, I don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> what? 
what do you mean? You're, I don't think it's a good idea. What if they put some advertising on that billboard that's almost right over top of our church that is absolutely contrary to what we teach? Well, we, we can come up with some policies and put some things in place that would never allow them to do that. That's, that's what we were saying. And so there wasn't total uh, agreement on that. And like a wise chairman, he said, let's take a week and pray about it. So I remember walking out of that meeting and the, out of the eight elders, the rest seven of us were going, of course, that guy's going to change his mind. Like, this is God's provision. He'll see it. Well, we came back after praying that week and asking God about it. And who changed their minds? Seven elders did. And I was one of them. And I couldn't believe it as it was coming out of my mouth. I don't think we should do this. And I knew God, God had put that in my heart like the rest of the elders, that it wasn't a good idea. But have you ever been in those moments where you're saying it, but in your head you're going, what am I saying? Now listen, loved ones, here's, here's, here's God's provision. So we said no. About four weeks later, there were some people who were coming to our church that had sold their church in the area. They were attending our church. It was kind of a sad story, but they were coming to our church. They were going where they believed God was working. And I'll never forget the day that that elder board chairman and the pastor of that church that had been coming to our church stood in front of our elders, and this is all they said. They said this, our church closed down, we sold our building. We sold all our assets. If you guys will just come, let us come to your church and be a part of your church. We believe God is at work here. We just want to lay down the assets of what we've sold that for, which is about a million dollars. Which is, that's God's provision. That was God's provision. And that was the seed money that we used to build out and finish our church in Rolling Meadows. Do you see the principle there, loved ones? In the crisis, don't forget this, in the crisis, wait for God's provision. As you remember who He is, as you do exactly what He tells you to do, wait for His provision. Let's pray. Father, that's what we want to do this year. We want to remember these things that your word has so clearly taught us through the life of David. I pray that for Pastor Steve. I pray that for the rest of the staff. I pray that for the elders as they lead this church. May this be a church that remembers who God is, that does exactly what his word says. Then trust you, God, for your provision, which is always right and what we need. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.